Violent attacks on churches and crisis pregnancy centers are on the rise as we await the Supreme Court's decision that could overturn Roe v. Wade. Should these attacks be treated as hate crimes? Domestic terrorism expert Kyle Scheidler and CEO of the Targeted Pregnancy Center we're talking about today, James Harden, join us. And Supreme Court justices are being threatened at their homes while the investigation of the court's leaked draft opinion continues. President of the Judicial Crisis Network, Kerry Severino, is here with analysis. And a an horrific attack on a Catholic church in Nigeria killed dozens of worshipers on Pentecost Sunday. Why are Nigerian churches and clergy being targeted? Priest of the Diocese of Orlu, Nigeria, Father Maurice Emelou, offers insight the world over begins right now. Now, Raymond DeRoy. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. But first, this news. On Tuesday, the bishops of Colorado issued an open letter asking Catholic lawmakers who recently voted for a new abortion law to voluntarily refrain from receiving Holy Communion. The Reproductive Health Equity Act that passed in April guarantees abortion rights in the state as the Supreme Court considers overturning Roe v. Wade. The bishops wrote, quote, voting for Rhea was participating in a gravely sinful action because it facilitates the killing of innocent unborn babies. And those Catholic politicians who have done so have very likely placed themselves outside of the communion of the church. The burden from their decision does not rest upon the shoulders of priests, deacons, or lay extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist. It rests upon the consciences and souls of those politicians who have chosen to support this evil and unjust law, end quote. Top bishops in Colorado signed the letter, including Denver Archbishop Samuel Aquila, uh, Auxiliary Bishop of Denver Jorge Rodriguez, Pueblo Bishop Stephen Berg, and Colorado Springs Bishop James Golka. After the recent leak of the draft Supreme Court decision that could overturn Roe v. Wade, some left-wing pro-abortion groups have targeted churches and crisis pregnancy centers. Just this week, a Compass Care pregnancy center was firebombed in Buffalo, New York. Mountain Area Pregnancy Services in Asheville, North Carolina, was also attacked. The facility was vandalized with red paint, threatening graffiti, and windows were shattered. How are these events being treated by law enforcement, and should they be prosecuted as hate crimes? Here to weigh in, I'm joined by Compass Care CEO James Harden and senior analyst and counterterrorism expert at the Center for Security Policy, Kyle Scheidler. James, I want to start with you and what happened at your Buffalo facility. Can you tell us a bit about the extent of the damage your facility endured and the response by law enforcement so far? Yes, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be with you today. Um, our facility sustained catastrophic damage, um, fire throughout, smoke damage throughout, 
It's going to take months to repair. Um, police and fire rescue responded at 2.30 in the morning to smoke from the facility. And when they arrived, uh, they, they found all the windows broken, uh, tires lit. Um, so we, the, the investigation is ongoing. Uh, the FBI is involved. Um, local police uh, in Buffalo are involved. And uh, we expect a report from the police um, no later than tomorrow. But we had video footage uh, on security cameras uh, trained at all the points of penetration. And those, that video footage was uh, um, taken for review by the FBI and local police. There were multiple perpetrators. We know that. Um, and uh, we hope that uh, they're going to be caught and, uh, and, and brought to justice. This was done in the dark of night, yeah. and uh, it, it needs to be brought to the light. Hmm. Kyle, your thoughts on this attack and the many dozens of others that have occurred since this uh, leaked court document hinting at Roe v. Wade's overturning was was uh, made public. These attacks would likely be considered hate crimes in any other context. Why aren't they being treated immediately that way now? Well, I think the certainly the acts were hateful, but we should view them in my view, through the lens of terrorism. They were clearly designed for two purposes. Yeah. One, to intimidate an arm of the government, that is to say the Supreme Court, and prevent it from making a rule on the Dobbs case that would be seen as favorable to the pro-life position. And then two, to intimidate the public, members of the pro-life movement, and to disrupt their ability to organize at the state and local level. The perpetrators are obviously very well aware that pregnancy centers are the forefront of pro-life activism in the states. And the state level will become the primary center of activity if the Supreme Court should rule on Dobbs in the way the leaked opinion suggests that they would. So these attackers are making the statement that they will escalate violence if the government does not do what they wish. And that is terrorism by definition. Hmm. Kyle, on Tuesday, the Department of Homeland Security issued this warning to faith-based institutions, really the whole country. Uh, this is what they said. In the coming months, DHS expects the threat environment to become more dynamic as several high-profile events could be exploited to justify acts of violence against a range of possible targets. These targets could include public gatherings, faith-based institutions, schools, racial, ethnic, and religious minorities, government facilities, and personnel, U.S. critical infrastructure, the media, and perceived ideological opponents. Now, DHS has, has enough concern to issue this statement. What else needs to be done here? Well, I think the DHS statement is a little disappointing in the level of vagary in which they try to paint as broad a picture as possible instead of issuing a specific advisory related to these attacks and these issues. Unfortunately, we have not seen the level of engagement from the federal government uh, on these issues when it comes to terrorism coming out of extreme left-wing groups like anarchist groups like this Jane's Revenge. Uh, they simply don't mm. treat them in the same way that they treat other violent terrorist groups. Uh, I think that's part of our problem. We've seen earlier this week the Department of Justice provided a slap on the wrist to a number of perpetrators who used Molotov cocktails during the 2020 rioting. And so I think as long as right. we have this disparity with how the uh, Department of Justice is approaching uh, this kind of political violence, uh, we're going to have problems.
Yeah, well, you, I, I agree with you. You can't pick winners and losers when you're dealing with terroristic activities. And no matter if it's coming from the left or the right or anywhere in between, you can't do it. It's illegal. And it should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, not allow people to go back and do it again. James, tell us about the state of New York's response to your situation so far. You've called this a hate crime. And, and been critical of what you call the silence coming from the White House and, and certain Democratic leaders. How has the governor's office addressed the situation, if at all? The governor's office has not addressed the situation at all. The governor's office has been uh, silent, and their silence can only be interpreted as complicity. You know, silence by, by, by political leaders emboldens this kind of activity. They need to come out and specifically denounce violence against pro-life pregnancy centers. It is reprehensible that they haven't done so and they didn't do so immediately. We're asking, and, and, and to add insult to injury, they passed a bill last week to investigate pregnancy resource centers. I mean, uh, why don't they redirect that? Why doesn't Governor Hochul veto that and redirect those, those, those resources to investigate true arson crimes and terrorist acts by uh, abortion activists? Mm. Hmm. Kyle, uh, I, I want to bring you into this and get law enforcement's perspective on this. Uh, these attacks are becoming more organized, it seems. Uh, Jane's Revenge has claimed responsibility for not only the Compass Care firebombing, but uh, a facility in Wisconsin and another in Oregon uh, is probably also their work. And the Asheville facility has the marks of Jane's Revenge as well. We hear a lot about domestic terrorism, and you mentioned this earlier. Um, this seems to be a new organized domestic terrorism. Uh, shouldn't it be treated as such? I know police in, in Casper, Wyoming, released video of a woman torching an abortion clinic. That's from the other side. Uh, and and as, as I said earlier, I think any act of domestic terror should be investigated and prosecuted. Yes? Well, absolutely. That needs to be the standard, Raymond. And unfortunately, I don't think that's what we have uh at this moment. Mm. As to Jane's revenge, the way to understand it is as a pro-abortion militant anarchist uh, group. But the way anarchists are organized, they organize in local cells. In all likelihood, the individuals who are mm. conducting these acts have voluntarily identified themselves as Jane's revenge. It is unlikely that there is a mm. hierarchy uh, or that they receive orders, although they may communicate from cell to cell uh, a little bit or use social media in ways so one of the problems we right. have in responding to this threat is that the federal government does not treat anarchist organizations uh, as genuine criminal conspiracies. They treat them as a bunch of loony uh, individuals operating separately, and that's not the way to understand them. Although they are cellular well, in so structure, they are very organized, yeah. and they need to be treated as an organization. Well yeah, this is like al-Qaeda. I mean, it, you know, uh, operating through cells in the United States. How are these groups? So you're saying they're not they're not being tracked by federal authorities? The level of understanding from federal in law enforcement regarding left-wing extremism in general and anarchist extremism in particular, in my mind, has been very poor. Uh, they generally have taken an approach that anarchist groups, uh, or anarchist individuals are primarily a local law enforcement problem. Mm. 
That's 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 really unbelievable. And again, it it looks like they're it looks like they're choosing uh, who to prosecute and who not to prosecute based on their uh, political activism, which is no way to maintain law and order. James, how has this attack affected your ability to serve women and children in your community? And are you intimidated by this? We are not intimidated. Um, this attack had slowed us down a little bit uh, the day of the firebombing. Uh, we, we, they forced mm. us, uh, they forced patients to have to drive 60 miles to our facility in Rochester, uh, which is a hardship on a lot of these mm. patients, but we, we continue to serve them. And the, the outpouring uh, of the church and, and, and the generosity of the communities around uh, essentially would not have Compass Care and Compass Care Services homeless. We got up and running in a new undisclosed location for security purposes. Uh, the very next day, we're serving patients as I, as we speak. Mm. Um, this is um, it's a heinous crime, and the, the, the attack was not really on Compass Care as much as it was on women. This was an attack on women, women mm. who desperately need uh, ethical medical care and comprehensive support in their hour of crisis. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I think people don't realize what crisis pregnancy centers do and that they're primarily caring for these mothers and their children. And I, I mean, thank God nobody was there, though. That that's that was the great relief here, James, that, you know, no one was present because you can imagine what what might have uh, uh, the, the, the victims that might have followed should should it have happened in the daytime. So I'm kind of glad it happened when it did. Kyle, before we run out of time. From your experience studying and examining these domestic terrorist cases, what do you fear most in this climate that has developed around this anticipated Supreme Court decision? And how does the delayed decision, particularly after the contentious circumstances around this leak, potentially fuel more terror and activities like this? Well, I think the thing that bothers me the most, Raymond, is the level of mainstream tolerance for this kind of behavior. This is running on a pattern. Mm -hmm. We saw similar to, uh, similar kinds of tolerance for political violence in 2020 with the riots that took place all over the country, uh, and we're seeing a similar situation now. The difference is we're seeing a transition from some of these groups from public acts of rioting, which are, of course, violence, uh, violent and terrifying, to direct action right. sabotage direct action attacks against uh, structures. And of course, the, the concern will be that they will then elevate to direct attacks on individuals uh, or, or, or organizations. So, uh, I mean, that's certainly my concern. And I think as long as we do not have a comprehensive denouncement of this kind of behavior from elements of the mainstream, whether that's in the media or in politics, uh, we will only continue to see this behavior continue and escalate. Now, both parties and the White House have to completely condemn this behavior and promise that everyone is going to be fully accountable under the law. And at this point, we haven't heard that because everybody's protecting their their you know political base. But this is this unleashes a chaos in the country and a dangerous element that, frankly, we can't put up with. And I'll bet Americans won't, certainly in some parts of the United States. James, I'm going to give you the last word. Oh, thank you very much. You know, if people want to get involved, if they want to do something, they can go to ProLifePregnancyCenter.com to sign a petition urging their pro-life, their politicians, whoever they are, to specifically denounce violence against pro-life pregnancy centers. That's ProLifePregnancyCenter.com. 
Gentlemen, we will leave it there. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. As the Supreme Court investigates that leak of a draft opinion which could overturn Roe v. Wade, law clerks at the court are seeking legal advice. And a man with a gun is arrested in front of Justice Kavanaugh's home. Joining me to discuss this and much more is president of the Judicial Crisis Network, former Supreme Court law clerk to Justice Clarence Thomas, Kerry Severino. Kerry, thanks for being here. I want to begin with this NPR report that came out Wednesday describing the mood inside the Supreme Court. Uh, they claim it's ugly and seething with resentment since the leak of that draft opinion. What have you heard? Uh, you know, I, I have not talked to clerks who are working in the building right now, but I just knowing what it's like anyway during this time of year, which is really crunch time. You've had all these arguments all year. Right. There's still cases. There's still a case that left from November that hasn't come out yet. It's really busy. And then you add on top of it, not just the focus and the public focus in the court because of the big cases, uh, but the fact that you don't know who you can trust anymore. That is a huge uh, problem. And then now you have the process of this investigation trying to find out who it is. I think, honestly, the, the leaker should, for the sake of his own, his or her own colleagues amongst the clerks and the justices, just out themselves because it's, it, you know, it's really undermining the efficiency of the court. They have way more cases to finish up by the end of this term, which is supposed to end June 27th. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any way they can do it, especially in this environment of distrust wow. and not knowing, uh, you know, which one among us is the person who uh, actually leaked this thing. Yeah, it's like the Agatha Christie novel at the Supreme Court. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, relating to that, he called the leak a betrayal. He ordered the Supreme Court marshal to uh, conduct an internal investigation. Now, according to that NPR report, that investigation may be adding to the tension at the court. Here's my first question. Is the marshal of the court competent to investigate something like this, in your opinion, Carrie? Well, you know, the marshal normally has a very different type of job. Normally, the marshals, they're dealing right. with building security. Uh, the marshal is, she's the one who yells, oye, 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 at the beginning of the Supreme Court <laughs> hearings. She also, you know, they deal with some of the personal security of the justices, which obviously has had to be dramatically ramped up at this point. But it's, it's more of a, a secret service than an FBI, right? It, it, they normally are doing with security, not with investigations. I'm, I hope they have the resources. They certainly don't normally have that kind of experience, but I would hope that no. uh, the, the marshals involved are up to the task. I was encouraged to hear that people are being asked for their cell phone records and affidavits of some sort. I'm not sure if it's affidavits saying, these are the people I've called, this is an accurate cell phone record, or I would say just ask them straight up, did you have anything to do with this leak, yes or no? Because also, you know, I think that'd be helpful to remove the cloud of suspicion. Everyone in this clerk class has basically people looking at them going, was it you? Was it you? I'd want to be able to, to sign on the line, swear under penalty of perjury. I had nothing to do with it. Please, you know, don't implicate me in this. Um, but I, I, I definitely, you know, I'm, I'm discouraged. We haven't heard yet who this person is. It's a small universe. Right. It, you're right. It's like Agatha Christie. And you're all locked in this one mansion. And someone did it. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> This, right. One of them did it. Or maybe more. Uh, to the wind in, in July. Right. Justice Thomas said when you lose the trust of colleagues, it fundamentally changes the institution. Has it? I, you know, I, I think Justice Thomas knows better than we do. Right. If he's saying that, I think that that's a real tell that there's there is some very 
serious lack of trust going on right now. I, you know, I, I whether whether the liberal colleagues are supporting their clerks who are you know trying to find legal counsel and uh, you know not wanting to participate in this mm -hmm. investigation or not. I I don't know, uh, but I think it's it's a real problem for the functioning of the court as a whole. I would have hoped, you know, we've seen several justices, including Justice Thomas, the chief justice, speak out about how outrageous this leak is. I'm sorry we haven't heard from someone like, you know, Justice Breyer, who is, a, is an institutionalist in many ways, right. or Justices Sotomayor or Kagan. I think it needs to be clear that the person who did this is not welcome, regardless of, of which side of the aisle they came from. And uh, it doesn't, whatever they, they their motives mm -hmm. uh, may have been, this was, this was, something that has did a lot of damage to the court, and as we're now seeing, has put a lot of the justices in real personal danger. Right. What do you make of this NPR story? I mean, it came from Nina, Nina Totenberg, we should say, which, you know, she comes with her own baggage and her own leak issues. Um, is this a way to try to make this investigation disappear or put pressure on the chief justice to sort of back away from the interrogation that is apparently underway in the Supreme Court? Yeah, I worry that the slow pace of the investigation might have something to do with people worrying about stories like this, worrying that, oh, my gosh, now you're going to have clerks mm -hmm. saying they're being scrutinized, raising Fourth Amendment search and seizure issues, raising their Fifth Amendment right to not testify against right. themselves. Uh, you know, they should be abiding by those amendments. But we're in a situation where these are employees of the court. They are effectively at will employees. And I think if you had the justices saying, hey, I don't want anyone in my chambers who's not willing to sign an affidavit, and uh, you're gone tomorrow if you won't. I think that would that would facilitate things. I do think it seems like it's trying to make the clerks the victims somehow. When I, and, and for all I know, all but one of those clerks mm -hmm. is. But there's someone in that building who has mm -hmm. committed a, a grave injustice against their fellow colleagues, his clerks, certainly against their boss, the other justices, and the country really in throwing the court into this into the middle of this political uh, juggernaut. Yeah. Well, while the leak itself may not be an actual crime, CNN reported last week that clerks have been asked to turn over, as you mentioned, their cell phone data, sign sworn affidavits in which lying would place them in legal jeopardy. Now, clerks are reportedly terrified and not really working with one another as they have in the past due to this, this fear and the tension and insecurity there. Uh, as a former clerk, how do you think this will affect the workings of the Supreme Court, particularly, as you said, during crunch time? This is when they've got to get these these uh, decisions out and they have to do it expeditiously. Uh, yeah, I mean, if I were clerking right now, I, I would I would retreat much more to my own silo of I'm just talking to my my co-clerks within that one chambers and not wanting to talk to a lot of other chambers. But look, at, at the end of the day, it's the justices who have to come to a conclusion on how they want to word each different case, et cetera. It seems to me. Um, you know, that, that the, 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 the clerk spending so much time looking for outside counsel, trying to figure out some way not to let let the off the clerks know if if they call Josh Gerstein at Politico. You know, I would I, I would just think the fastest way to do this is to say, yes, I'm going to sign this. I I, I personally, uh, you know, I, I, I understand concerns about not wanting to hand your phone to someone. But it sounds like what they're asking for is just I need I need a list of your calls. I think that's much more defensible given the context of what's going on here. And, you know, I, I think they should be able to get yeah. stuff done uh, faster than they're doing it now. I want to move on to a related story. It's a terrible one. A man with a gun was arrested by police on Wednesday near the home of uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. 
after making threats against the Supreme Court justice, there have been protests outside the justices' homes and threats of more protests to come, with people claiming this is their First Amendment right in action. In light of what's happened this week, Carrie, shouldn't the law be enforced here and these protests and certainly threats against justices at their home, this shouldn't be happening. It's against the law. Yeah, because there are laws that, that say you can't intimidate a judge, not just a Supreme Court justice, but any judge. We don't want judges who are making their decisions because they're frightened of what will happen to them or their families if they rule one way. We want them making their decisions based on the law. That is the rule of law, and that's how we have, that's our American system, and that's the strength of our system. So, well, mm -hmm. they obviously have a First Amendment right. And, and boy, I can't count the time, number of times I've marched on the Supreme Court myself at the March for Life, you know, protesting a decision. But it's different when you're going to someone's home, especially you think of several of these justices, Justice Barrett, Justice Kavanaugh, who have children, and you're, you're putting their families at risk. Because even if every one of these protesters who is part of this organized protest is uh, peaceful, ultimately, even, even if they are shouting vile things on megaphones, et cetera, but they're not out to physically harm someone, They've doxed these justices. Their addresses are now out there. Their cameras going up and down their street. Now the the deranged person, like the man arrested at Kavanaugh's house, has a clear path. He said he found the address on the internet. How? Because people are arranging protests at their houses. And so I think they should be enforcing mm. those federal laws already on the books that are supposed to protect justices from this type of activity and leave it. Leave those. First Amendment concerns, absolutely, but the First Amendment does have limits in terms of making sure that safety is is uh, protected, just like you can't run up right up to the right. president because they're worried that someone's going to attack him. There was someone just today who had to be uh, taken away from a motorcade because they're protesting by the president's car. You, you have to have limits that protect I the safety of our public officials at the same time, allowing protest in, in other venues. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to show that video here because uh, it, it's illustrative of the snap and important protection of the president that happens. Now, this is just a woman with a bullhorn on a street in L.A. Uh, the, the other situation are people actually patrolling your house, trying to uh, inflict harm upon you because you might rule a certain way in a, in a, uh, a, a Supreme Court ruling. This is madness. They have to protect these justices. Now, Kerry, the Senate unanimously passed a bipartisan bill last month, co-sponsored by Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas and Democratic Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, which would extend protections to Supreme Court police to immediate family members and the justices. Now, after the arrest near Kavanaugh's home, Senator Mitch McConnell had this message for House Democrats. This is exactly, exactly why the Senate passed legislation very shortly after the leak to enhance the police protection for justices and their families. This is common sense, non-controversial legislation that passed in this chamber, in this chamber, unanimously. But House Democrats have spent weeks blocking the House's Democrats have refused to take it up. Now, look, Mr. President, that needs to change, and it needs to change right now. Right now. House Democrats must pass this bill, and they need to do it today. Now, Kerry, White House Press Secretary uh, Karine Jean-Pierre came out, and she said 
that the president condemned the actions of this individual in the strongest terms and that, quote, any attempts at violence or attempts to intimidate justices have no place in society. However, the president himself did not come out and condemn the threat to democratic law and democratic lawmakers have been awfully quiet. Why do you think that is? And will this bill pass? Yeah, it's very discouraging because I would say that the protests at the homes are per se intimidation. They're very intimidating and saying, we know where you live. And the mm -hmm. president has refused to condemn those protests. And in fact, Jen Psaki, his previous press secretary, was very encouraging of them, talking them, oh, they're very passionate and they're peaceful and we encourage peaceful protests. Um, that, that, that needs to change. I think the president should be putting pressure. He's got a lot of Democratic senator colleagues who have, have obviously passed this legislation why are the House Democrats holding it up? Ultimately, I think the why has to go with the fact that this administration has consistently been more responsive to the radical, deep pockets of the dark money left than they are to even the average Democrat voter. Even before this incident in front of Kavanaugh's house, most Democrats agreed that you shouldn't be protesting justices' houses, that you should be protesting in front of the Supreme Court when you have a concern about the Supreme Court. Mm. That's, so they're not even responding to what most mm -hmm. Democrats want, want. They're responding to the radical voices um, that have way too much sway with this administration. Kerry, mm. why the delay in releasing this Dobbs decision? Wouldn't it be better to get it out there and move on? It seems by staggering the delay, you're only increasing the political tension and causing more of these uh, threats against justices as well as protests. Yeah. Now, remember, if there hadn't been a leak, no one would be surprised that the decision wasn't out yet. Typically, the decision that is the, the most controversial decisions take the longest because to get it out, you need all the justices in the majority yeah. to agree on the exact wording of how they're going to phrase this opinion. All of the justices who have written their dissents and their concurrences to all agree who's signing on to what and exactly how that's written. It does take time. However, in light of the fact that we have this unprecedented leak of an entire draft opinion, I think the court should have moved quickly and I, more quickly, and I think they should move more quickly now to say, you know what, we need to put this top line. We need to make this before we do any other work on the almost 30 other cases they have. We need to get this case out. We know they're able to do it. In, in the fall, remember, they heard the Texas heartbeat bill case. That came out in 50 days, which frankly is a millisecond in Supreme Court time. This case was argued in December. They could, I think, put the pressure on to move faster. I hope it's not that the, some of the uh, justices who are writing dissents and some of the, on the other side in this case are refusing to be finished with it. I would say the chief justice should just say, you know what, if the majority's ready, we're putting their opinion out there, let's finalize this thing, let's, let's stop the risk that someone thinks they can change the result by assassination, that's horrible. Mm -hmm. And let's, uh, if we need to issue the concurrences, the dissents later when they're ready, you'll, you'll hear them, you'll get them in, in later June, you'll get them in July, but let's get this opinion out now to take the pressure and the threat off of our justices. I wish you were the Chief Justice, Carrie. Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network, thank you for being here. Thanks, Raymond. On Pentecost Sunday, gunmen opened fire on worshipers and detonated explosives at St. Francis Catholic Church in Ondo State, Nigeria, killing 40 and injuring 87 more. Why were these Catholics targeted, and why has there been an increase in attacks on and kidnappings of Christians in Nigeria of late. Joining me now to discuss this and much more, Nigerian priest, professor at John Carroll University and founder of Gratia Vobis Ministries, 
Father Maurice Emelou. Father, the town of Awu in uh, Ando State, where this attack took place, is a relatively quiet area. It's about 200 miles southwest of the Nigerian capital. Why would a group of gunmen target Catholic worshipers during mass in this town? Ray, please, thank you so much for bringing me on your show. And uh, I have to say first that um, my sympathy to the town, to the people of mm -hmm. Owo uh, in, in the southwest of Nigeria is a Yoruba tribe and, and the whole community, the whole state and the Catholic community, the Diocese of Ondo, our sympathies mm -hmm. to you for this barbaric act. But what I could say based on our um, investigations and eyewitness account and the context of what happened and what is happening in Nigeria right now, I could give you some context that will provide evidence to why. One is the political situation. The way, uh, from our investigation, I think what has happened is more political but carried out through the shade of religious target. And I say that for three reasons. The first, that particular part of the country is a Yoruba tribe. And that part of the country is, I would say, probably 50, 50 percent, you know, Christians and then Muslims. And then there are a few minorities, like the African traditional religionists. And that part of the world lives peacefully in the country. If you come to Owo in particular, the, place, the town that this happened, you have Christians and Muslims and native religionists living side by side, in, in fact, in the same families, peacefully, happily. The governor of the state is a Christian. The wife of the governor of the state is a Catholic. Um, but they have pretty good, peaceful environment in that place. So why would it happen now? Well, since the past two years, there have been some sort of migration from um, like, I would say, herdsmen, we call them Fulani, from the Fulani tribe, herdsmen, that herdsmen that travel down to the south in, in order to look for greener, greener uh, fields for their cattle. Mm -hmm. And they have come in large numbers to those parts of the country and other parts of the country. And there has been a sort of a, a, a correlation between increased violence and their migration to those places. And they come, they don't stay on the streets, they go right into the forest, and from the forest, some of the native community members accuse them of, there is it's alleged that many of them um, abuse people, uh, cause a lot of violence. They are, they are like maru marauders who go and sort of mm -hmm. pillage the whole place. And then, in, as a response, mm -hmm. the government, the governor, of the state decided to come up with policies to flush them out of the forest and to look for proper documentation and to, you know, mm. increase security. So people believe, some people are alleging that this attack is a, a reprisal of the government's policy. Why Owo? Mm. Owo is the native town of the governor. And the Catholic mm. Church, St. Francis Xavier, is one of the most vibrant parishes in the whole country. In fact, that mass, it's estimated that average of about 1,200 or 1,300 people must have been at that mass. So it's a very iconic place. So it's wow. like hitting at the heart of Yoruba land, hitting at the heart 
of this community mm. where people are living peacefully and trying to stir the pot in order to create tension and political tension in this in the state. Yeah, on Monday, Bishop uh, Jude Arogundade of the uh, Diocese of Onda had this to say about the massacre. He said, it is quite unbelievable that somebody would come and the intention was to kill everybody in that church. Those running out, they were being shot from outside. Uh, those who were inside were being shot from inside. They took two dynamites to blow up the altar, then to the sanctuary. This kind of desecration can only be done by the evil one. Your thoughts, Father, on what uh, happened here, what the bishop said, and what did you think when you heard of this attack? I was mortified. I was saddened. I was upset. I was angry. I just, I was depressed. Because as Bishop Jude said, it is barbaric. He said it all is barbaric. There is no explanation for this kind of, 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 of terror. And what is even more upsetting is that even at this point when we are talking, no culprit has been identified. The security agencies have not identified who did this. It does not, I will share it with a couple of people. They said, you mean that no person has been found guilty of this or have been, no culprit has been identified? I say, yes. That tells you the nature of the insecurity, the nature of the pain. There is no closure. It's inexcusable. I think this should be a clarion call for the government, to, national government and state governments to come together mm -hmm. and bring an end to this kind of satanic, devilish oppression. Mm. But you make it sound like it's a, it was a political attack or at least a reprisal, uh, a response to politics. Uh, the people in the town of Oa are naturally in a state of shock after this deadly massacre. At least 40 people have been confirmed dead, among them infants and children, and over 87 people have suffered injuries. What are you hearing from the folks on the ground? I mean, they must be in a state of terror. What I'm hearing... What I'm hearing from the folks on ground, why I am emphasizing the political side of it, because often we ignore the political undertone that is taking place. And, and because there are many Christians, non-Catholics, even Muslims, who are really mortified by this event as well. So it's not because what they, one of their strategy, these headsmen, unfortunately, they are Islamic fundamentalists. Some of their plan is to stir up division in the country. And by stirring up division in the country, they can have their leeway into a, a, a program of control. But then the particular culprits for this event, we don't know if it is the herdsmen, it's alleged, but we are not sure because they have not owned up to that. So there is no explanation. There is no explanation except to say it's closer to election. Mm. They want to create mayhem cause fear, and then maybe steer the country in a way that is more uh, dark than it is right now. Father, in a statement following the attack, Nigerian President Buhari had this to say. He said, no matter what, this country shall never give in to evil and wicked people. Only fiends 
from the netherworld could have done this dastardly act. Now, President Buhari is nearing the end of his two-year term, his two terms, rather, his presidency. He was elected on the promise of, to end insecurity in Nigeria. However, security challenges uh, have only gotten worse under his leadership. At the same time as this attack in Oa, a Catholic priest, a Father Christopher, was kidnapped in another region of the country. A week ago, the head of the Methodist Church in Nigeria was abducted, along with two other clerics, and freed after paying $240,000 in ransom. Now, two weeks ago, two Catholic priests were kidnapped. They were not released. And in early May, it was reported that Father Joseph Bako, who was kidnapped in March, had been killed by his abductor's father. What is driving this violence? I mean, you say it's generally peaceful. Doesn't sound peaceful to those of us looking in now. Thank you so much for pointing out this. The president was elected on the promise of security. 2015, now the situation is worse. You didn't even mention the young Christian girl that was killed last month and burned, and the violence that followed after that. Well, I'm, I'm not saying that the whole nation is peaceful, but I'm talking about in the communities, in the families. So there is, it seems to me that there is an outside influence, political influence, from outside communities of those communities that are infiltrating the communities. That's what I'm saying that are infiltrating the communities and trying to stir the pot and, and cause mayhem and chaos. And, and, and that's mm -hmm. the political side to it. But the hate yeah. is religious. The hate is religious. The spirit of it is mm -hmm. hateful, is religious. That's the argument I'm making. And I'm saying that the president is time to act because the promise is the criteria for measuring the success that he gave us I don't see it. I don't see the success. I don't see the growth. Yeah. I think we're going back, way back to yeah. the curve. Well, look, in the last decade, Nigeria has been plagued by Islamic fundamentalist terrorist groups, really. Uh, Boko Haram, ISIS has targeted Christians in the country, mostly in the north. Armed gangs operate across this country. I've been reporting on this for years now, Father. But so far, no group has claimed responsibility for this Sunday attack. What kind of protection do the Christians of Nigeria have from these groups? And are local law enforcement and state governors going to do anything to stop these people, these tar terrorist groups? It's sad to say there is no clear protection. But I think something has to be done. First, it has to begin with pol uh, community policing. Policing in Nigeria is centralized, and that's not serving the need better. I think community policing should be something to consider. And it, 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 the state governments are trying their best, but because their hands are tied also, the police, police system is, is, is national. Um, there is the spirit of fear and fear of reprisals from unknown gunmen in different parts of the country. So it's a frustrating thing happening. But I think this is a decisive time in the history of Nigeria when Nigerians have to take action by themselves because they have to fight. Go and get your PVC, the Permanent Voters, uh, voters Registration Card, to vote the next president that you believe that will change this leadership problem in the country.
and reduce violence. Pope Francis sent a telegram conveying his sorrow uh, about this terrible massacre. He said, in commending the souls of the dead to the loving mercy of Almighty God and imploring divine healing and consolation upon the injured and those who are grieving, the Pope prays for the conversion of those blinded by hatred and violence so that they will choose instead the path of peace and righteousness. Your thoughts on the statement and what should the Vatican be doing now to help the faithful in Nigeria as well as other countries? I think the Holy Father has laid a very strong foundation for, for us to think about this issue first, spiritually, the healing that has to take place, calling us to praying for healing. And his invocation is even more um, touched me deeply because his, in, his invocation is on healing and strength and courage, on the other hand. So I see two things happening there, healing for us. Hate can never be overcome, overcome by hate, um, it, no matter how sad it is. Let's approach it with the spirit of the Christian call of love. But then there should be courage. The courage should and strength to take action, concrete action, political action, religious action, humanitarian action, policy action. Again, concrete action, voting the right people. Not the politics of money, not the politics of corruption, but the politics of fighting for the future of this big nation in Africa. So it calls for that healing, it calls for the spirit of love matched with the spirit of courage that the Holy Father is praying and invoking that we, Nigerians, should take action. But much more, it also calls for a global response. And I think the Vatican is taking a lead in that in different ways of trying to inform, educate our communities and, and send help to our communities to build in that path of justice, that path of courage, and healing. Father, I thank you for being here. Certainly our prayers are with the, the people in that community who are still suffering, and we still don't have the death count yet. So you can imagine being one of those families and, and f having this happen to you while you're in the middle of a church service. You can follow Father Maurice Emelou on Twitter at Rev Emelou and visit his website, revemelou.com. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Ray. How can we use our imaginations to become better people? To tell us, I'm joined by resident scholar at the University of Dallas and author of the new book, The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. Jessica Hooten Wilson joins us. Hi, Jess. I, I want to begin with your interest in holiness. You say in a recent interview that your interest arose uh, out of a Fulbright Award uh, you, you were teaching at a university in Czechoslovakia, and people there recognized you as being from the U.S., but they had no idea you were a Christian, and that bothered you. Why? Yes. So I was in the Czech Republic, and they recognized I was American. You know, I wasn't smiling, um, or I was smiling too much. I wasn't keeping my stone face the way that a lot of them had kind of been enculturated to do. Um, so they recognized that, but nothing about my life struck them as Christian. And when I was teaching, I was teaching at Charles University, and I would teach these religious novels, these novels with these holy characters and holy fools. They were stunned that I could actually believe these things. How can an educated professor want to live like this? You know, what looked foolish in their eyes. 
And I, I realized that's what I needed to be doing. I needed to look more foolish in my own life, to look more like the characters I was teaching so that I could actually say, yeah, I believe this. This is true. In your introduction, you write about the current culture uh, and the reading of great books. Uh, this is from the, the intro. Somehow, the call to read great books has become a rebellious mantra. Uh, once in innocuous pastime, reading literature in our current culture is a way of protesting. Can you imagine anything more countercultural in this society than to say no thank you to Netflix? Every culture has heroes. Every culture chooses whom to remember and to revere. As Christians, we've not lost our capacity to adore heroes, but we are uncomfortable venerating anyone unless it's an NFL player, the latest Christian guru, or a superhero. If the church decides not to uplift saints, its members will worship the alternative heroes offered by culture. How difficult is it to get people to read, especially young people who are surrounded by so many distractions and gadgets and social media, to say nothing of these uh, secular-generated heroes? Yeah, it's become the norm to say, I want to turn my brain off. I want to shut myself off from mm. the world. And yet what they mean by that is that they're going to turn on their devices. They're going to turn on their screens. So you're actually letting go of parts of yourself to be plugged in, to be slaved away to something that is controlling your imagination, that's making you less active and less contemplative. And the call to be a Christian is to be one who meditates on words, prays words, and hopefully leads you towards, you know, a greater vision beyond yourself, your place in the community, your place among other persons. And a lot of these devices mm -hmm. just feed this idea that what you want matters who you want, you know, what you want to read uh, doesn't matter as much as what you consume and what you produce. And it really makes you less of a person than, than the scriptures call you to be. Tell me about the writers that attract you. You've written books about Walker Percy, who lived across the lake from me, uh, Flannery O'Connor, Graham Greene, uh, C.S. Lewis. Your book is very ecumenical. But there are an awful lot of Catholic writers. How do their works illustrate holiness for you? Well, the Catholics are in touch with things, you know, the Catholic Church never lost its priority on the things. And then, of course, what those things signify is part and parcel mm -hmm. of the thing itself. And so a lot of Catholic fiction feels very comfortable with the significance within matter in a way that the Protestant mm -hmm. tradition kind of broke away and separated the matter from the spirit in a lot of the ways that they worship and the way that they talk about things. And so you have fiction that's more didactic, that's more focused on prose or sermons, um, mm -hmm. whereas the Catholic fiction really digs down underneath things and and looks beyond the surface to say, okay, what does it mean? What, why does it matter? Uh, what, you know, the enchanted mm -hmm. worldview that, that was kind of retained by the Catholic Church. And I think that that's something that a lot of people are missing. You know, we're, we're surrounded by a world that is driven by advertising and a Gnostic universe in which you are just the persona that you represent on social media. Mm. And fiction really pulls us back into a story in which what we're doing matters and how we do it matters. You write that C.S. Lewis is the 20th century's primary defender of the imagination. You go on to say uh, that it's important, uh, imagination is important. And while Christians love talking about how to live better, how to help people, how to fight injustice, and so on, 
we too often do so as an intellectual exercise. We push imagination to the side as fantastical and unnecessary. Fiction offers an escape and has nothing to do with the practice of faith. But the imagination has everything to do with our faith. How we imagine our God, our world, and ourselves affects how we live and how we die. Have we lost that Christian, that Catholic imagination? I mean, Tolkien and Lewis were, were, were men of faith who shared a love of literature and fan fantasy. Uh, you know, as someone who teaches at a university, how important is it to have a liberal arts education at a university level that features courses in classical literature, particularly the literature you're writing about? Absolutely. So the liberal arts, I mean, that's the arts of freedom. It's practicing having a free soul. That's what they're supposed to do, is that they train you to desire the things that are in line with who you are. Whereas a lot of what the world does is try to enslave you to things that make you less than what you are. So imagination is key to really change people's desires. Um, William Wordsworth said, what we will love, they will love, and we will teach them how. Education should be all about training the loves to love what is worth loving. And our stories, we really enter into a world in which what we're supposed to love, what is true, what is beautiful, what excites our soul and really calls us to be grander and greater than we we truly are. And um, something that is beyond ourselves is exciting. And I think those those grand adventures, the adventure of sanctity um, is the greatest call. And education should be leading yeah. us towards that call. In the book, you write about the role of suffering uh, in, in the search for God and how some writers are particularly adept at writing well about suffering. You point to Flannery O'Connor, who suffered with lupus her entire writing career. Uh, she had this to say about suffering in her characters. She wrote, It has always seemed necessary to me to throw the weight of circumstances against the characters I favor. The friends of God suffer. How can literature like this help us not only understand suffering, but see how it draws us to God? Yeah, well, suffering is part of the human condition. It is the state of the fallen world. So we can't, you know, control that. We can't get out of all suffering. And the illusion that we can, I think, is problematic because then suffering surprises us when in reality mm -hmm. it's something that should be part of our lives and not something that we flee from. What's the, the horror that Flannery O'Connor is always talking about is the fact that God can redeem all suffering, that no suffering is beyond his ability to use it to instrumentalize that suffering mm -hmm. for his good. And that is a scandalous thing to say, but it's absolutely true. The worst of suffering God can use for the greatest of his glory. Hmm. Uh, talk to me about something you touch on in the book, and it's this—you uh, say there are a number of Christians who sort of—they're always looking for the rainbow, you know, over Noah's Ark, and, and they don't want to, you know, experience the precursor or talk about it. Uh, and, you know, I, I call this the fake literature uh, that moves from perfection to perfection, you know, unlike uh, the more gritty— uh, realization of, of, of faith lived that Flannery O'Connor or this new Father Stu movie that's coming to theaters uh, touches on. Uh, what, what do we lose by focusing on the cross without the suffering? The happy oh, cross, exactly as someone right. once said. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, this is this, the whole story of the world. The story that's revealed to us in Scripture is a story that is about fall and redemption. It's about Good Friday and resurrection. And if we just mm. move from resurrection to resurrection to resurrection, I mean, what is being brought back to life? You have to have right. 
what is dead be brought back to life. You have to see the suffering of the cross. And without that, you have a false conception of the world. And, and also you have a false idea of how to enter into that. I mean, suffering will make you uncomfortable. Death will scare you. But if you believe that on the other side of death is resurrection, then you have nothing to fear in this world. Yeah. What do you hope readers get from your book? Why did you write it? I hope they love more. I, I hope that my book encourages people to see what is worth loving. Uh, it is a very dark world. It's a dark time, and people have definitely suffered a lot in the last couple of years. I hope the book instead turns us to some of these beautiful souls and says, the adventure of pursuing holiness is a great call, and the call is yours. And if you follow it, the Lord will grace you with an increased capacity to love others. Hmm. I've read that you're working with the estate of Flannery O'Connor to complete her unfinished third novel, Why Do the Heathen Rage? Uh, how do you even undertake a challenge like this? I really enjoyed it. I, you know, I can't really separate my voice from Flannery very much. That's actually been the criticism of my first book was that I couldn't, t the reader couldn't tell the difference between Flannery and me um, because I have been reading her since I was 15. So for me, learning mm. how to read and how to write has come so much from Flannery. And it's just been such mm. a privilege to get to see what she was working on, to see that unfinished story. Uh, Carl Rahner says, all we bring to God are unfinished symphonies. And you really get to see Flannery's unfinished symphony. And hopefully I get to share the unfinished symphony in the next year or two with everyone. Wow. How cool is that? Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Meanwhile, the scandal of holiness renewing your imagination in the company of literary saints by Jessica Hooten Wilson is available now at bookstores everywhere and online. Jessica, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.